Some of you would very much like to honor the memory of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I believe that if you listen carefully and prayerfully today, the Word of God will direct you how to best be faithful to that legacy. Let's pray. Oh, God, you've already heard what we've prayed. We mean it with all our hearts. Make us your servants. There's nothing special or honorary about us. But we would just like to help out. What matters most to you? If we could know that, we would know how to live our lives. And so, today, your word... Let it be front and center in our consciousness. And what we hear, dear Father, help us to heed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe our community of faith faces a very serious defect. Call it a deficiency if you wish. Our problem is that we have the truth and we know it. Is there anything more onerous than a smarty pants? I mean, do they still call them smarty pants? What do they call them now? Huh? Smarty pants. I mean, you know, when I was in college, I went to college with this kid. He was Always right. I mean, no matter what we were talking about, he was always right. And it drove me to distraction because I wanted to be always right. You know, people who are always right are a pain in the side. I mean, I love that quip of Mark Twain's who, when, when he speaks about people who, you remember this, people who are good in the worst sense of the word. They're always right. Is that, is that, is that the truth about us? Are we theological? Are we, are we ecclesiastical? Are we spiritual? Are we evangelistic smarty pants? Always right. You know, people who are always right can be a pain in the side of God, too. Oh, we have the truth and we know it when the more pressing query is, do we live the truth and do we show it? You see, that's the pain. That's the pain in the side and heart of God, I believe, today in this third millennium. And that's what the cry is all about in Isaiah 58. Don't open your Bible to Isaiah 58. We're going to get to Isaiah 58, but before we go there, we need to, three, we need to go to three in-your-face stories. That we must ponder first. I mean, have, have you ever seen God get really mad? I mean, hopping mad without losing his temper, you understand? Hopping mad. The Bible calls it righteous indignation or his holy wrath. Have you ever seen God with that holy wrath? Three stories today where the divine outburst is memorable. Three stories. But in order to understand these three stories and Isaiah 58 where we are journeying together, there are two key words, two key words that we have to get straight. And so let's just deal with the key words right now and then we'll go to the three in-your-face stories. The two key words are study guide. Take out your study guide, please. It is in your worship bulletin today. 
Our ushers, would you please right now prepare, stand up, please stand up right now. And because I want every child who is here, parent, don't say, you know, this child is so young, I don't want him, I don't want her. No, come on, let the child be a part of this worship experience. I want everybody, because you, three of you came in with one bulletin, let everybody have one. Some of you are collecting these. Of course, so please have one. Now, those of you who are watching on television right now, I want you to go. In fact, we'll put it on just a moment. We'll put it on the screen. We have a website. You go to that website and the study guide will be there for you. You can do this right now as you're watching. In fact, let's put it on the website, www.pmchurch.org.org. And you're looking for the repairers of the breach, part two. So look, look, it's going to take you three clicks. Those of you watching on TV, it'll take you three clicks. You've got to get to the opening, our website, and then you click on study guides. Then you go to the next site. It says, it says uh, teachings. You, go to, you, you click there and go to repairers of the breach, part two. It's right there, right now. And you can follow along with us. Two key words in today's teaching. Once we get these key words out, man, we're going to fly through these three in your face stories in Isaiah 58. Two key words. Let's put it on the screen. Keyword number one, orthodoxy. Ortho, ortho is right. Doxa is knowledge, thinking. Orthodoxy, it means right thinking. Put it down. Right thinking. That's what orthodoxy is. Right thinking. There are two words. Now, these words don't appear in the Bible, by the way. They're words that we use to describe what the Bible is all about. Number one, the Bible is about right thinking. It's orthodoxy. And here's the second key word. Orthopraxy. Ortho means right. Praxis means acts. Your acts, the acts that you do. In fact, in the New Testament, the Greek name for the book of Acts is praxis. Praxis. Orthopraxy is right practicing. Would you put that down, please? Right practicing. Once you see these two words, boy, then we fly. All right, so here's another way to put it, still on your study guide. Orthodoxy is knowing the truth. And orthopraxy is showing the truth. See? Now, the, the question we began with just a moment ago is right here on your study guide. You suppose, hey, wait a minute. Do you suppose this is our problem as a community of faith? We have the truth and we know it, but do we live the truth and do we show it? Fill in those sentences, please. Oh, my. Three stories where God gets very angry. Listen, don't be hard on God. You would be just as angry if you were in the same situation. God is... God is full of love and compassion, but there comes, a mo there comes a time when God says, enough is enough. That's what these three stories are. All right. And by the way, where better to go when we're looking for the truth about God than when God was enfleshed, the incarnated God? So we go to the life of Jesus and all three of these, they're in your study guide, all three of them are in the Gospel of St. Matthew. Let's go to story number one. Matthew chapter 21. I'll be in my new King James Version again. By the way, if you came here into the building without a Bible, there's a New King James sitting right in front of you. And if you say, listen, Dwight, I don't even know where to find Matthew. The page number is 664. Now, look, there's no excuse for you now to be able to follow along now. You've even got the page number. 664. All right. The rest of you don't try that page number because you'll end up in Hezekiah. And that's a book you, if you find Hezekiah, let me know. All right. This is Matthew chapter 21. We'll pick it up. Oh, it's a familiar story, but oh, is this story something else? Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to begin reading right now in verse 12. By the way, this is Monday. Jesus will be dead on Friday. That's how close we are to Calvary. 
So whatever's happening now in Jesus' life, it is so critical, it is so passionately vital to Him that we must not miss it. Let us not sleep through this because Calvary is just hours away. Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God. Now, I just have to stop right here because it's amazing that the worshipers in the Old Testament, they were really big on their temple. In fact, in Jeremiah, jot this down. Jeremiah 7, verse 4. They're always saying, the temple, the temple, the temple. If they were alive today, here's what they'd be saying. The truth, the truth, the truth. We got the truth. We got the truth. See, that's the way the worshipers were then. The temple. Jesus says, all right, you want to talk about what you have? Let's talk. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and, oh boy, I wouldn't want to have been there. I would not have wanted to have been there. I'll worship on Wednesday, thank you. I don't think I'll be available on Monday. I wouldn't have wanted to have been there. Then Jesus drove out. In the Gospel of St. John, chapter 2, it describes him picking up a few hemp, strands of hemp, cord. And he drove out. Now, you know, you, you try to get the experience of the moment. Matthew is very gracious and he, he blocks out the cacophony. But when you have cows mooing and sheep bleating, and by the way, when you go like this to an animal and you startle the animal, which is what Jesus did, go! You know, an animal does just autonomic response, does weird things when it's frightened. And so now the temple is, has these smells in it as well. This is not a pretty scene. But he feels so deeply about what is about, what is taking place here, that never mind. And he comes to the tables. How does this go here? He drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold the doves. So he's lifting up these tables and he's throwing the coins. You know, one penny dropped on this platform and everybody stops. Can you imagine a thousand coins tinkling in a thousand different directions? Just rolling. What's What's going on here? And he said to them, verse 13, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. I need to tell our visitors who are here, those are the words that are found chiseled right into the rock on the, at the front door of our church. Not den of thieves, by the way. House, house of prayer. In fact, you know where Jesus got these words? Isaiah chapter 56, two chapters before our theme chapter. God says, my house will be a house of prayer for all people. So you have those very words. Jesus quotes Isaiah 56. He said, but you made this place, you made it a den of thieves. What is up with this? Now, wait a minute. Something's going to happen here. And we've missed it before, but now we'll catch it. Verse 14, Then the blind and the lame came to Him in the temple. You know why they came? Because they were not allowed in the temple. Oh, no. Hey, what is the problem with you? Can't you walk straight? Stay out of here. What's the matter? Can't you see? Get out of here. Now, hold it. It's not all the blind and the lame. Because if you have, if you have this, you can come, even though you're lame, you can be carried into the tower. Oh, please. If you're blind, but you have this, you can be led in with great escort. It's the poor. 
It's the disenfranchised. It's the economically alienated. They have been kept out early this morning. I decided to pull Desire of Ages out and just read the story to get it in my soul. And I scribbled in my margin these words from Desire of Ages. Many came who were too poor to purchase the humblest offering for the Lord. Too poor even to buy food with which to satisfy their own hunger. We're talking about dirt poor, not filthy rich. Dirt poor. And they have been kept out. The poor, the sick, the dying made their vain plea for favor. Their suffering awakened no pity in the hearts of the priests. You know, it's a sad day when leadership loses its, its sense of pity for the disenfranchised. We have disenfranchised all around us in this community. The most depressed city in the state of Michigan is 12 miles up the road. But we cannot afford as leadership to say, well, we just can't afford that ministry. We cannot. It's sad if we have to for the sake. It's just sad that compassion has to get put on a back shelf. And so the lame and the blind are coming. And Jesus healed them. You see that there at the end of verse 14? And Jesus healed them. In verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, oh boy, there is a marginalized group on, on earth. Kids. You say, not my kids. No, your kids are the exception. I'm talking about the billions of other children on this planet. Who's caring for those kids? Well, it's all I can do to get my kids through Christian education. What's your problem? The marginalized. They've, the children have always been marginalized. But isn't this something? He comes in and says, you guys have had it upside down. Bring the lame. Bring the blind. Bring the children. And look what the children do. And the children crying out. They were crying out in the temple and they were saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. But when the chief priests and the leaders heard this, they were indignant. Verse 16. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. I do. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. Oh, wow. All right. Story number one in your face. Two key words. How should those key words be applied to this story? Take your study guide and let's write it in. Here is a classic case of orthodoxy without orthopraxy. There it is. Fill it in. Orthodoxy. They had the right knowledge. But oh, it was the wrong practice. See? In fact, would you fill this in, please? They have the day of worship right, but they are wrong about the way of worship. Look at that. Isn't that something? These are the orthodox. <laughs> They have all the truth in the universe, so to speak. And they come under judgment. They come under judgment. Whoa. All right. Three in-your-face stories. The other one's very short. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. That'd be page 653. Matthew chapter 7. All right, Matthew 7. This is near the end of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Very pithy, punchy story. Oh, divine, divine 
passion, wrath. Oh, I'm sorry, but it is also here. Verse 21, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, this is Jesus at the end of time. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Long phrase for obey. The ones who come into the kingdom are those who obey my commandments. Well, that's what he says. Just read on here. Verse, verse uh, 22. Many will say to me in that day, that's the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? And then, verse 23, I will declare to them, here comes now that divine passion and wrath, that holy wrath. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You thought the law didn't matter and you practice living without the law. Depart from me. Oh, I, I wouldn't want to be there. I would not want to be there on that day. Would you put it down in your study guide, please? Here, now the tables are turned. Here is a classic case of orthopraxy without orthodoxy. They have the right practice, but they've abandoned the right knowledge. It could be, fill this out, it could be they have the way of worship right, but they're wrong about the day of worship. I need to, I need to make an invitation right here. Cut into, hit the pause button this afternoon at three o'clock. My colleague and friend and pastor, our pastor here, Skip McCarty for three hours is going to lead us on a very focused Bible study on the theme, the everlasting covenant. I'll tell you why. Because there are some in the evangelical world who have studied the covenant and they say, aha, the seventh day Sabbath of the fourth commandment, it's under the old covenant. It no longer makes a hill of beans difference. There are also, unfortunately, a few colleagues of mine who have chosen to journey another direction because of a misguided conclusion they made about the everlasting covenant. For three hours, nine handouts. Pastor Skip is going to lead us this afternoon. The youth chapel, Anthony Casabono Memorial Youth Chapel. I wish you'd come and join us. Because you see, orthopraxy doing it right without believing the right thing is empty as well. Okay, three stories. Final story. You know this one, Matthew 25. In fact, this is Christ's last public teaching before He's executed. He has some private teaching in the upper room. But this is Matthew 25. You know, when a man comes to his final words, you listen very carefully because those final words obviously are indicative of what matters most to him. His final public teaching. Now, this is a great parable about the king. Who It's the coming of Christ. Jesus says, when I come, I'll be like a king and I'm going to separate the, the people, the sheep from the goats, the, the, the righteous from the unrighteous. You remember the parable? I'm going to cut through all that parable. We don't, we're not going to read the whole parable through. I want to drop down to verse 37. 
Because you remember, Jesus says to the righteous, to the sheep, He says, you know what? What I really Come on into this kingdom. It's been prepared for you by my Father. What I really appreciate about you is when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you put clothes on my back. When I was in prison, you were in the prison bands and you came to me. When I was sick, you visited me in the hospital. I love you. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. Come on in. And the righteous now exclaim in verse 37, Then the righteous will answer him saying, Time out, Lord. When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, in as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Come on in. Oh, hey, goats, stay right there. Stay right there, goats. I was hungry, you didn't give me a thing. I was naked, you never gave me a stitch of clothing. You drove through Benton Harbor week after week after week. You did nothing. Do you know how much you paid for that house you live in now? Do you understand the value of that house? I'm not against your making investment of the meager funds that you have, but... Does it occur to you, goats, that while you were sitting in your relative opulence in the first world, I had people living like the two-thirds world within 12 miles of your driveway. You're not coming in. Oh God, I never saw you. I never knew you, Jesus. I would have done it if I had known it was you. What do you mean you didn't know I was in all of them? When you drove to, when you drove to Orchard's Mall, you went right by me. When you drove by that tavern on the street corner, I was standing there and I was watching you. I was watching to see what you would do when my eyes caught yours, but you turned your eyes. You said, I don't want to have to see this. You didn't even want to look at me. You didn't give a rip for me. You know what you said? I pay my taxes. What is the problem? The taxes cover it. You drove right by me. Don't you talk to me about driving into my kingdom now. Enter the fire. It wasn't prepared for you. I never planned on you being in that fire. It was prepared for the devil. But you go too. I mean, we read it in our New Testament witness a moment ago. Judgment without mercy will receive... A life without mercy will, will receive judgment without mercy. You don't want to be a goat. I'm promising you. Don't be a goat. Three stories. Oh, what is the truth in this story? This is an interesting one. This is not an either... Watch what this one does. Story number three. This is a story of orthopraxy over orthodoxy. Look at that. This is a story where right practice supersedes right knowledge. I know what you're thinking. Everything within your orthodox heart is saying, stop, stop, stop. Where is the truth? The truth, the truth, the truth. You know what? Whenever I, I, I come to this parable, the haunting line from Desire of Ages, which comments on this parable, always returns to me. I'll put the line on the screen for you. When Jesus told this, this last public teaching, Thus Christ on the Mount of Olives pictured 
to his disciples the scene of the great judgment day. And he rep- notice he represented its decision as turning upon one point. When the nations are gathered before him, there will be but two classes and their eternal destiny will be determined by what they have done or have neglected to do for him in the person of the poor and suffering. End quote. Whoa. You know what that says? That says that when you and I stand before the great judgment bar, there will be a single question addressed to us. What have you done? By the way, it will not be the question, what have you believed? It will not be the question, what have you believed you should have done? The question will be, what have you done for those who are less fortunate than you? I don't care how you define your economic status right now. There are people on this earth who are less fortunate than you. If you're a bankrupt student in this university, there are people on earth who are less fortunate than you. And I'm going to ask you one question, God says. I'm going to ask you, what have you done for those less fortunate? What did you do? Wow. I was in them. I was watching you. Put it in your study guide, please. Right behavior supersedes. Story's clear. It supersedes right belief. God is not against right belief. We wouldn't have Holy Scripture if He were. It's kind of like, it's not faith or works. It's faith that works. It's not orthodoxy or orthopraxy. I suppose in their genuine, in their purest form, you're gonna, you, you cannot have one without the other. Of course, you're going to have faith that works. But I want to just tell you this little aside. Orthodoxy can, can drive out orthopraxy. But the Scriptures are clear. If you have the right behavior, you may not have had a chance for the right belief. You'll still get in. But if you have the right belief without the right behavior, you'll never get in. Now we turn to Isaiah 58. Our final story. And by the way, this is a story. Isaiah 58. I'm going to read this story to you. I want you to ponder this story carefully, please. Once upon a time, there was a chosen people called by God, my people. A people who believed they were the champions of orthodoxy. And so they repeated the prophecies. They recited the laws. They remembered the holy day. But they could not understand why God was not blessing them like He should, like He promised. And so one day... As the story goes, the people came unto God and they cried out to Him, Dear God, we are flustered. We are frustrated. Or as as Chris used to say as a little girl, Daddy, I'm so frustrated. They were frustrated. What have you done? We have worshipped you. We have fasted. We've had a passion for you. We are your champions of orthodoxy. You do not bless us. What is the problem? And behold, as the story continues to go, the Lord God in heaven laughed and cried at the same time. For it was true. 
He had asked them to repeat His prophecies and recite His laws and remember His holy day. But He had always hoped that in being champions of His orthodoxy, they would also be champions of His orthopraxy. And so God laughed and wept and was very angry as heartbroken gods and lovers can be. You worship me with your lips, he cried to them, but you wander from me with your lives. Cry aloud, verse 1. Spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression in the house of Jacob their sins. Verse 3, the people respond, why then? Why have we fasted? Just every time you come to the word fast, read passion. Why have we had this passion for you, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? God answers in verse 5, hey, what do you mean why? Is this the passion I have chosen? Is this the fast? A day for a man to afflict his soul and to bow down, a woman to bow down her head like a bulrush, spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? God said, look, you want to prove that you're passionate about me? Listen, then why don't you have my passion as your passion? You want to know what my passion is? My passion is compassion. That's my passion. Compassion. If you want my passion, you need my compassion. Not for me, for them. Who are them? And God answers. Verse 6. Is this not the passion that I have chosen, says the Lord, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Verse 7, is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out your fine house? And when you see the naked that you cover him and you do not hide yourself from your own flesh, the poor who are on your campus, the poor who are within your community of faith. Verse 10, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as noonday. What has God just said? Put it down in your study guide. God has just said, I love your orthodoxy, but I am missing your orthopraxy. I love you knowing the truth, but I need you showing the truth. You are poor champions if you do not champion the poor. I want to repeat that. That's the line I hope you'll take home today. You are poor champions if you do not champion the poor. That's what I'm saying, God says. You can have all the truth in the world. The chapter opens with the cleansing of the sanctuary, ends with the seventh day Sabbath. You can have it all. But you still are going to come under judgment. Having the truth, you will still come under judgment. You know, I, I told you last week that I'm, I'm on the speed, uh, speed course through the Bible. Forty chapters a day, you get it done this, this month. And so I'm, I'm 
flying through the tail end of the Old Testament. And I, I am so moved by how repetitious the cry of God's passion is to His people. What is it? You are so orthodox. What is the problem? You know the truth. Why don't you show the truth over and over and over again? In fact, you go to Isaiah chapter 58, verse 12. Let's just read verse 12. We read it last week. Verse 12. Those from among you. There'll be a generation from among you, God says. I'm excited about this generation. They, these, shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of Streets to dwell in. God has always had a golden rule from the beginning of time. How does the golden rule go? Do to others what you would have them do to you. God says, look at my golden rule for compassion for the human race. It's broken down. But I'm going to get a new generation. A new generation that is hot for my passion, my compassion. And they will build it back up brick by brick. One poor needy soul by another. And that wall will get restored. The breach will be repaired. Obviously, having the truth and living and embodying the truth are two universes apart. What's the truth about God? What is the truth about God? Ah, put it in your study guide, would you please? This is why God cries out here in Isaiah 57. Let's advance it, please, to, uh, to the study guide. Isaiah, in, in Isaiah 58, this is why God is so passionate. Just, just make sure you get it in. Fill it in here. Where are we on this? Oh, you want to prove your passion for me? There it is. You want to prove your passion for me? Write in the word passion. Then demonstrate your compassion for them. That's why God is crying out in Isaiah 58. You can help me build up this wall because I'm going to lose you. When you come to the judgment, I will lose this entire community. Orthodoxy will not save a community. It's orthopraxy. You have orthodoxy. I need orthopraxy. Build that wall up. It's a wall to protect the defenseless, the hopeless, the helpless, the loveless on this planet. Help me, please. By the way, last, last blank to fill in your study guide. It is one of the stunning truths about God in Holy Scripture. Oh my, He lives night and day. Write it down. In solidarity. In solidarity. Night and day. That's how God lives. In solidarity with the, with the poor. Viv Grigg. Kiwi. He's a New Zealander. Some of you are from New Zealand. Viv Grigg sensed the call of God's compassion and felt compelled by God's solidarity to move from his western affluence in New Zealand into the cardboard and tin barrios of Manila. Some of you are from the Philippines. He went into the heart of Manila. I'm reading his book right now, Companion to the Poor, and, and the other book, Cry of the Urban Poor. I'm being moved by the incarnational ministry of this Western man who found out what God's passion was. One day he sat down with a friend. He said, okay, we're going to look up every text in the English Bible that speaks of poor, poverty, or lack. 245 texts later, he had them all written down on little tiny white cards. And for four years in a row, night and day, he meditated on God's solidarity with the poor. Now, in your study guide, I've given you a, 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 a string of texts. I don't want to look at all those texts. I want to go to wise King Solomon, who I think is as most uh, 
pointedly captured God's solidarity with the poor. And so let's just take a look at uh, these from Proverbs. Let's do, let's do Proverbs 19, verse 7. This is from the today's English version. When you give to the poor, it is like lending to the Lord, and the Lord will pay you back. Remember Jesus said, you did it to them, you're doing it to me. Jesus was simply taking God's passion of the Old Testament and applying it. Uh, let's do the next one. Proverbs 17, verse 5. When you... You know, some people joke about this. They joke about people who live across the tracks. They have jokes, ethnic jokes, racial jokes. It's sad. If you're ever in a circle where a racial joke starts to get told, just stop it. Say, hey, 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 I can see what, hey, you mind telling the story some other time when I'm not here? Or walk out. I wasn't telling a joke, but uh, all right. As he walked out, I thought, well, man, did I say, was that a racial joke right there? <laughs> no, just kidding. All right. <laughs> this is uh, Proverbs 17, verse 5. When you make fun of, the, of poor people, isn't it something? When you make fun of poor people, you insult the God. When you make fun, you insult the God who made them. You do it to them, you're doing it to me. Do you understand that? You do it to them, you do it to me. When you don't look at them, you're not looking at me. When you stop to help them, when there's a knock at the door, you're doing it to me. Do you get that clear, he says. All right, one more. Proverbs 14, verse 31. This is from the NIV. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Wow. Wow. Isaiah 58, of course, it's a powerful uh, championing of God in the Old Testament. But I suppose, without question, the most compelling proof of God's solidarity with the poor is when God incarnated Himself and He came to earth. He came to earth as a poor man. I like how uh, Viv Grigg puts it. Jesus embraced non-destitute poverty. He was not the lowest of the low. I mean, people provided for Him. They gave to Him. There are some people on earth that nobody's providing for. No government. No nobody. They are the destitute. Jesus, was, Jesus embraced non-destitute. That's in your study guide. Non-destitute poverty. Born in a box of cow feed. Dead on a cheap piece of wood. And you know what? When they took His last will and testament, they, they said, your estate now goes to the, goes to the state. They had His underwear... And a seamless tunic. That was it. That's all the man had. But when the blood of Calvary dripped to the rock that holds that cross up, that is the blood of a poor man who is dying as God for the human race. A poor man died for our middle class affluence. A poor man died for you. And foxes have dens. Birds have nests. I don't have a home like yours. I didn't even have a home at all. Conrad Bamer, in his classic book, The Rich, the Poor, and the Bible, writes, 
The founder, I love this, the founder of Christianity was himself poor. His identification with others was unprecedented. He gave himself up for this new community. The church is built on his self-surrender. He can be criticized in almost every respect for his origin, for his status, for his pretensions. But one thing is irrefutable, his solidarity. Jesus is the embodiment of the poor man. End quote. He is the poor. And as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and my sisters, the hungry, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned, you did it to them, you have done it to me. Come, come, come into the joy of your Lord. I know you possess the orthodoxy of the Seventh-day Sabbath. I know you have the orthodoxy of Yom Kippur, the cleansing of the sanctuary, but do you understand what those two orthodoxies are all about? Orthodoxy number one is about the fatherhood of God for all humankind, which means every man, woman, and child is your brother, your sister. We're all family. And number two, the cleansing of the sanctuary is about the impending judgment of the human race. If people need to be saved, they need to be saved now, not the next generation. This generation sacrifices itself to save a lost and poor world. So I love your orthodoxy. But you are poor champions indeed until you champion the poor just like God, just like Jesus. Where can Jesus be found and known today? Viv Grigg writing. To find Him, we must go where He is. Did He not say, I love this, where I am, there shall my servant be also. Such a search invariably leads us to the heart of poverty. For Jesus always goes to the point of deepest need. Where there is suffering, He will be there binding wounds. His compassion eternally drives Him to human need. Where there is injustice, He's there. His justice demands it. He does not dwell on the edge of issues. He's involved always doing battle with the fiercest of forces of evil and the powers of darkness. That night in a squatter settlement, my heart found rest. There could be no turning back from God's call. I must preach the gospel to the poor. End quote. So wrote Viv Grigg. So what about us? Here in all our middle class affluence and splendor, twelve miles away, from a a depressed urban center. What are we doing? Hmm? Poor champions indeed we are unless we champion the poor. You know, there's not much of an appeal I can make here. I, I, I feel frustrated about this. Because frankly, I I don't know what what we're supposed to do now. I mean, I know God's solidarity with the poor. That that is, you you can't argue with it. What do I do now? What am I supposed to do? What are you going to do? Here's what I'd like you to do. At least do this, please, with me, with me. For the next seven days, would you pray and ask God to open your heart to His solidarity with the poor. Would you? Would you just make it a matter of prayer? 
I'm going to have some homeless people on this platform next Sabbath. And there are some specific ways. You know, we're going to try to put a little insert in the bulletin that will give you ways that you can respond so that this is not just hearing without heeding. But for the next seven days, would you do that? Would you, would you pray, God, what would you have me to do? You know, this community was big once upon a time in sponsoring Holy Land tours. You want to go where Jesus was? Come on, let's go to the Holy Land. I was pri- privileged. I went on one of those one of those journeys back in 98. But I cannot forget the words I came across once in Desire of Ages. You want to find where Jesus is? He's where the baby cries. He's where there's need. That's what He listens to night and day, ladies and gentlemen. We have filters. We turn the sounds off. The moment our television set goes off, we forget the world. He hears those cries night and day day. And they aren't always the voices of babies either. Sometimes they're grown men who are sobbing over a half-empty bottle of whiskey because they have no hope. They have no way to find is there anything beyond this sodden moment. He hears those sobs night and day. We filter them out. Get that sound away. I'm very uncomfortable with that sound, we say. He lives with it. You want to go where Jesus goes? You don't have to go to the whole land. I'm going to save you $1,100 for a tour. Desire of Ages, I'll end with this. Desire of Ages, take a look at this. Many feel that it would be a great privilege to visit the scenes of Christ's life on earth, to walk where He trod, to look upon the lake beside which He loved to teach, and the hills and the valleys on which His eyes so often rested. But we need not go to Nazareth, to Capernaum, or to Bethany in order to walk in the steps of Jesus. I walk today where Jesus walked. You know that great song? You want to walk today where Jesus walked? Here it is, right here. We shall find His footprints beside the sickbed, in the hovels of poverty, in the crowded alleys of the great city, twelve miles away. And in every place where there are human hearts in need of consolation, that's where you will find Him. In doing as Jesus did on earth, we shall walk in His steps. Oh, I tell you what, as a university community, if we're having to make decisions about the future, I hope those decisions... Do not blank out of our corporate journey the very paths where Jesus walks. Because if we're not careful, we can eventually end up on a pathway where there are no blood-stained footprints at all. And we will never hear the cries because we'll never go We'll never send our students. We'll never go ourselves. We'll just blank it out of our minds as some sort of annoyance that needs to be taken care of. You know what? You want to find Jesus on this earth? Andrews University and the Pioneer Memorial Church? You just read where His footprints are. I don't know what that means for you. I know that there are some very creative minds here that the Holy Spirit is going to move upon and they are going to come up with new opportunities of ministry for this entire parish. And I'm waiting to hear from you.
I got an email from one of our graduate students last week. He said, you know, Dwight, you ended second service with this big appeal to 20-somethings in the late teens. Why, why, I, I couldn't stand up. Why, didn't you, why did you leave me out? Nobody's being left out of this. There is a new generation coming that carries, I believe, a special proclivity for the path of Jesus. But all of us. I got an email from one of you, middle-aged, I suppose, who said, you know, I could make loaves of bread and I could take those door to door. I'm telling you what, that was a godsend. That's Jesus speaking to you saying, that's exactly what the kingdom is about. Just take some bread, please. I don't know what you'll come up with, but I'm appealing to you, please, for the next seven days to join me in praying that God will open our minds and that we will not be under judgment, that our orthodoxy will be matched by our orthopraxy and what we know will be seen by what we show. Fred Pratt Green, one of the great 20th century hymn writers, I think this should become our theme song here. I want you to open your hymnal right now, please, to hymn 581. This is just Dynamite. When the church of Jesus shuts its outer door, lest the roar of traffic drown the voice of prayer, may our prayers, Lord, make us ten times more aware that the world we are banishing from our campus, that the world we are banishing from our consciousness or our curriculum, that the world we banish is our Christian care.